a number of people will be aware that we are that this, the technology does seem to be working. Howard, meow. Uh, hello, everyone in the chat. Um, we're we it's 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 real matter. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm joined by Stan Westlake. Stan's here. Uh, it's very exciting. Stan, thank thanks so much for joining. Um, <laughs> it's the technology seems to be working. Sound seems to be working. Uh, no one's complaining that things aren't working properly, which is a good sign. Um, just to prove. In fact, I tell you what. Before I get before we before we get distracted, I shall I shall start the episode because I always end up going around in circles. I am going to try and keep this one within an hour because I'm very bad at timekeeping. It's episode 144. Should we abolish the treasury? It's a very exciting episode. Um, before that, though, uh, and, and I suppose kind of typifying some of the themes that we're going to talk about because this train was very much a product of treasury thinking. Um, the class 144, the last of the pacers, here it is, looking particularly miserable in a, in a combination of uh, regional railways and Arriva Rail North livery. Oof, it's the good stuff right there. Um, yeah, look at that. Anyway, uh, that, this this fine train here um, is, uh, is is gone. They're, they've all, Not many have been scrapped. Most of the heritage railways have them. So there you go. Marvellous. Um, the news. Two very quick bits of news. Um, so the first, which is quite cool because it's gone public, which means I can briefly allude to it, is that there's a new TV series. This, Stan, this is really cool. This is possibly one of the coolest things. I've got a baby arriving next year, which is by far the coolest thing that's happened to me in my life. But this is this is like quite a cool thing. It's, it's, it's not close, but it's like definitely kind of in, in, in the runners-up pile, which is that I'm um, providing technical input into a BBC thriller, kind of in the li- like a, kind of Line of Duty-esque style to- sort of taut thriller which is quite fun. Um, and this is... Okay, so the, the weird BBC press release talks about a high-speed train between Glasgow and London. It's not a high-speed train. I don't know why they said that. Um, Stian is here. Yes, Stian, hello. Is your is your mic still working? Uh, I, think I'm, I think I'm all here. I'm, yes, I'm, people I'm are asking, is Stian actually here? We can't hear him. Yeah, he is. He is. He's just oh, waiting I'm for really the news here. to finish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's okay, everyone. Can, the, 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 the YouTube chat is going on. They always keep me right. Thanks, everyone, in the YouTube chat. Um, so, yes, this is happening. It's very exciting. I'm providing technical input into it. It's quite good fun. Having read the scripts, they're really quite... It's quite good. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it on the telly. It'd be good fun. Anyway, so train telly. Yeah, good fun. It's not on a high-speed train, though. That was just the BBC press office getting the wrong end of the stick. They are exclusive. You heard it here first. That's probably more information than I'm allowed to tell anyone, and I'm already probably sacked. But anyway, right. Uh, Next news item, which is going to lead us nicely into the episode, really, which is... um, Last week, we talked about the fact that the Secretary of State for Transport... um, was very very elusive about answering a question related to the um introducing terms to to basically derail talks to avoid the strikes that's now been conf- all, all but confirmed uh, via the FT um so thanks to the FT for that but yeah t- basically UK ministers blocked a deal so there was a deal on the table that was ready to be accepted and and, and essentially the treasury threw in um, driver-only operation as a, as a as a as a condition, which obviously then immediately derailed it because that's what all the strikes from 2016 onwards were all about. So, Treasury somehow once again um, making everything worse, uh, and and we're going to explain in this episode or attempt to or understand. And, and well, Stian's going to tell us all about um, what we could possibly do about this. <laughs> um, so, without further ado, um, Stian and I are going to welcome you to to tonight's Rail Natter, everyone. Welcome to tonight's Rail Natter. And 
And as the Intercity 225 fades away, Stane, I forgot to tell you that you, you can't hear the intro music through Skype, sadly. But you just have to imagine the kind of the cruising theme from either the engine. Oh, nice. Uh, I like it. It's very nice. I, what's fun is I have, I have active permission from the record company that somehow has the rights to it, um, which is kind of fun. So, yeah, very, very surreal situation very where cool. I actually have authorized ability to use that as part of my little podcast. Anyway, let's get our little little faces in the top corner. In fact, you know what? So here's a big here's a big picture treasury. Uh, fine. Um but first, we're going to talk about Stian, because, Stian, you are the chief exec of the Royal Statistical Society here in its That's uh, fine glory, which is exciting for a number of reasons. I'm going, to get our two, I'm going to get our two big faces next to each other. So I've, this is me going a million miles an hour. Um, before, for the 30 seconds before um, I let you properly introduce yourself, and then I'll stop yakking on. Uh, it's cool because we, I know that we have at least two statisticians who watch who watched the episode uh detour if you're watching this now hello um also my wife is a freelance statistician amongst many other things she's a health economist but she does statistics as well so this is so i'm kind of slightly fanboying in the fact that i've got the chief exec of the rss on anyway so that's very cool um anyway enough of me oh. waffling Stian, welcome to the show and, and and for people who might not be familiar with the rss and, and you uh, tell us a bit about yourself and, and the society thank you so much for having me it's really a real pleasure to be here and chat about the treasury and railways um, so, uh, I run the Royal Statistical Society. We are the UK's um, learned society and membership organisation for statisticians, data scientists, and everyone who cares about the good use of data and statistics. Um, we've been around since I think, 1834. We were founded by people like Charles Babbage back in the day. We've changed quite a lot since then. With the We've logo with the wheat. Left. With like the wheat the was the original wheat. logo, right? You know, I, I kind of miss the wheat sheaf logo. We had this <laughs> logo with a wheat sheaf. And it had a Latin motto called Alice Exterenda. And what that meant, it means, I, I had to be told this, it means for others to thresh out. And the idea is the statisticians just gather up the wheat, but it's, it's everyone else's job to work out what that's to do quite, with it. That's quite nice, yeah. Um, but we don't have the wheat sheaf anymore, sadly. I think some people still have a wheat sheaf pie that I've seen, but yeah, it's uh, the, the old days. And I guess my background is obviously a lot of statistics now. I've generally in the past done quite a bit of technology and science policy work. Um, so I worked for the government as a policy advisor on some of those things. Worked at Nesta running their think tank doing tech, tech policy. So that's kind of uh, my interest. And I guess there's kind of a, there's, you get into a bit of an overlap with a lot of railway and a lot of transport issues there. Yeah. Although I confess my ignorance about most rail policy in advance. Oh, no, that's, that's very much a good thing. We, I mean, we try, one of the themes that we try and push as part of Rail Matter is, um, trying to move away from like common like commonly accepted truths and and actually exploring what the reality is behind those usually through numbers and data whether it's spatial data or numerical data or, or whatever it is and we try and use those to kind of think about what the future of transport and railway should look like so it is actually a perfect little little combination hence why we have you know cool statistician people who do this professionally join us in the chat and, and are interested so i'm always honored that nice. people who are interested in data kind of um uh get stuck in yes yeah, in so so yeah you in fact I tell you what, let's let's go back to our small faces and continue our odyssey so um a while back now well i say it's a while back it was may this year and um, this piece popped up which i didn't spot at the time frustratingly embarrassingly i spotted it a little later but it was this it, it was a, a kind of a, a big one of these big idea pieces um for the guardian um and you wrote this piece about should we abolish the treasury and it was based off a paper you did right that's right this has been a bit of a hobby horse of mine for a while. The paper I think I published back in 2014 with Michael Giles Wilkes, who used to be a government special advisor. And um, 
the argument was that, you know, maybe it will be a good thing for the UK, the UK economy, the UK society, if we didn't have one incredibly powerful central government department that handles the money. Yeah, there's that. And, 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 and this is a deeply, so we're, we're going to get into all, we're, we're going to go full Socratic method. Everyone who wants us to go full Socratic method, we are going to go full Socratic method. We are going to ask what is a treasury, or what is a slash the treasury. Um, but there's a saying that get that I've heard multiple times from both junior and very senior people within government when I've been lucky enough to be in House of Parliament doing bits of advisory stuff or select committees or whatever it is. And, and it's the idea that governments change, but treasury is always in power. That's not a healthy yeah. situation. That's not a healthy. That's not a healthy situation to be in. Um, having a strong civil service is really important. Like this isn't us saying everyone, every single civil servant should be democratically elected. No, no, no. But it's this idea that there is a very strong um, organizational inertia and, and sort of inertia of thought within Treasury that, that we need to unpick. And we're going to hopefully. I explain a bit about why that is. So, so yeah, it's a really good article. That I, I will add to the description. I haven't actually, but I will add it to the description. It's well worth having a read. Um, and it kind of connects to what last week we were talking about, um, New Labour, no, a New Britain, the, this this uh, piece of Labour kind of constitutional discussion, let's put it that way, a bit of a, bit of a, a green paper, kind of a, well, let's just say it's a red paper, but it's kind of a, a high-level stuff. And they don't specifically talk about Treasury, but they do talk about this, this over-centralisation of power, which... I think a lot of that is related to this concentration of power within Treasury. So that's quite interesting. And then for anyone, I'm, I'm doing a bit of a, here, here's your homework, everyone. So if you're watching this after the fact, pause, go back, read these, come back, you know, and you get the maximum out of the episode. But we also had the IFG, we had Alistair Baldwin and Kelly Shuttleworth on from the Institute for Government, talking about how governments use evidence to make transport policy. And that touched on how different the UK is to other countries. Actually, a lot of other countries... All other countries are different, but we are particularly different in how centralised our policymaking is on that front. So there's the context. Um, Treasury. So um, I suppose the first thing we have to ask, Stigan, is, <laughs> and I'll let, you, I'll let you try and explain this one, um, what is a slash the Treasury? What is Treasury? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> so the simplest way of putting it is the Treasury is the department in the government that handles the money. So it is the, the beautiful picture of it there. It's a very yeah. fine early 20th century building. Um, I used to work there. I spent a year working there. Lovely place full of very smart people. Um, so broadly speaking, it does tax, government borrowing it thinks about, about economic growth. It is kind of the finance function of the government. If you have a yeah, relationship that's a good with your point. Finance. Yeah, so, so it's these three segments, right? You, you, you talked about in the piece, right? These three elements, yeah. right? So. So yeah, you just you were just introducing there the the budgetary yeah. element, right? As the first exactly. So there is so the budgetary element is if you from a business background, you know it's the equivalent of your finance director and the finance director's department. So it's the it's the bit of government that brings the money that that once the money is kind of in the door, it apportions it. So it decides how much money the NHS is going to get, how much money is going to go to invest in transport, how much money is going to go yeah. to science, all of these kind of things. Yeah. And then the next section, in, in the order that you talked about in the piece, the next section you then talk about is, is the equivalent of a financial ministry. Um, yeah. yeah. And so the, the idea of this, so, you know, budget, finance, these are all kind of money words, but they all have a kind of subtly different implication. Mm. So from a finance, the finance ministry point of view, this is the bit that is concerned with what you could think of as the UK's public credit, our ability to borrow money at an effective rate, the ability to manage all that government borrowing, 
to, to a certain extent, the what they call sponsorship in government, the supervision of the financial sector. Some mm. of that's done by third parties, but the Treasury is the place that really cares about that. Um, so this is the kind of thing that, you know, when there's a run on the pound or when there's a, a crisis like there was um, in the autumn after the mini budget, this is this is the bit of the Treasury brain that kind of really swings into gear. Yeah. And then the third part, this third element of, of what of this Leviathan is the economics ministry or, or the, the equivalent of an economics ministry. Um, but what, what does that again? You're right. They, they, these aren't quite money ish words, but but they all do have a specific purpose. So what's the economics element of the of the Treasury? <laughs> The economics, the economics element is broadly the bit that's concerned with making the UK economy grow. Um, so this is a little bit. This is this is the people who think about, you know, could we increase productivity? Are there things we can be doing on the labour force front? Um, yeah. And so again, to go back to this kind of model of the of thinking about this like a business, the budgetary ministry is a bit like the finance director. Finance ministry is a little bit like the the your your investment banker or your 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 corporate treasury department yeah. and the economics ministry is a bit more like the business development department not quite the sales department but the people who are thinking about strategy and yeah. new customer acquisition and what the plan's going to be and as anyone who's been in a largest business will know those are three quite different mindsets yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are really different uh yeah um yeah like absolutely fundamentally diff like opposed like magnetically opposing needs requirements um, data inputs and outputs, all the sorts of things that like, and yes, they're relationships and overlaps, but but they are three, as you talk about in the piece really clearly, they're three very distinctive functions. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you, you're right, there are some kind of, there's some commonalities between the mindset you need. You need to be interested in economics, you need to be a bit quantitative, you need to be able to think about incentives, which is something that not all other parts yeah. of government do. You, if you Let's say you run the home office, you run the home office, you have tens of thousands of employees, you own prisons, you can lock people up, you can deport people, you, you're, you're a department that does things. Treasury is all about incentives. Treasury can sort of change tax rates, or it can adjust credits, or it can uh, issue bonds at a particular time. But it has to think quite economically about incentives. So that's a commonality. But as we were saying, the difference between the accountant mindset and the kind of head of business development mindset can often be quite different yeah yeah so uh, one of the things so i was thinking this is a little insert this is kind of a, a sidestep from the piece but it's a little thing that i often come up against in discussions i have about treasury is that the variable that, that for some reason all three of these quite distinctive groups have have ended up picking on within treasury is often not not uniquely but often the, the a specific ratio this this particular ratio and, and the conditional formatting in the spreadsheets that drives it of, of government debt to gross domestic product, and we're not going to get into uh, economic theories, but but this 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 is a single a single measure that's not necessarily hugely helpful. But debt to GDP is one of the you know that ratio. I've kind of shown it in a few different ways there, and people can. We, we, there's a whole episode on this, so I'm not going to dwell on it. But this ratio, which is sort of um, you know government debt in a way is 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 the same as um, as as private credit. So it's almost like how much money is is slushing around in the in, in personal and private sector that government has taken on and vice versa. And generally they're a mirror of each other, right? So if you have high government debt, then that generally means there's low private debt and vice versa. So at the moment we've got quite high private debt, government debt. Yeah. So anyway, and then GDP is another reasonably poor measure of the health of an economy, but it's the kind of the, the one that's seen most commonly and used most commonly. And so the ratio of these is seen as a measure of economic health and often at the expense of a lot of other things. And, and, and it feeds into the fact that, as I pulled out your piece, 
if you're thinking about incentives, which is, as you say, what Treasury is all about, is this measure, debt-to-GDP ratio, the right way to then frame what incentives need to be? Um, and I think in your piece, you touch on the fact that it, it, there are some negative consequences of, of the combination of those three functions and, and, the, way, and, the, and the, the consequence of what incentives they come up with. Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, if we think kind of the metaphor of a company that's kind of in financial distress or that, you know, doesn't have the trust of the market is getting hassled from its banker or its bondholders, if you kind of imagine a, a company like that, that kind of company is going to care a lot about its debt levels. It's going to care a lot about its debt service ratios. It's going to care a lot about if it's um, if it's uh, if it's paying dividends, whether it can meet its dividends um, obligations on time. It's going to be very financially oriented in a kind of similar way to what we've been talking about. Mm. But there is a sense in which you know that's not that that is not the happy place for a company to be. You know, if you talk to kind of well-run, high-performing companies, they kind of they need to give their investors trust that you know they're not going to lake out on them financially. But what you then do with that trust is you use that to invest, to develop attractive new businesses yeah. and to kind of to, 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 to build. Yeah. And I think that is the that is, in a sense, there's a kind of folk memory at Treasury about, you know, the UK has gone through a lot of tough financial stuff over the course of the 20th century. You know, we, we started the 20th century as the richest country in the world. Mm-hmm. We had a big financial shock after the First World War. We had a kind of very torrid time in the interwar period. We then transformed our economy into a war economy in the Second World War and ended up totally out of pocket at the end of that. Then there was a kind of period of the 1950s and 60s where we had, you know, various upheavals of balance of payment, currency crises in 60s. I think the UK economy was briefly kept kept afloat by Beeple's royalties in terms of our foreign exchange. But then we had the kind of late 60s currency crisis. And then obviously the 70s, there was a lot of turmoil as well. So you've got a kind of a the, the the battles the Treasury has fought over the 20th century have been very much around preserving the UK's public credit, making the right decision about when to cut back, when to mm. kind of take the L, as it were. Um, yeah, yeah. And so consequently, that is quite ingrained in their mindset. And actually, the events of last autumn, when you know there was a, this kind of dash for growth that ended up in a really sticky situation from a financial markets point of view. I, I I don't no no one was happy about that, but it was very much you know, this is something the treasury you know the treasury like we've got we know what to do under these circumstances. Yeah, and it was almost yeah it's like nothing good came of that because it was almost like the you know people might you know for example me uh, might think that the the approach to growth was a disastrous one, but the fact that we immediately became beholden to the bond markets is also not good. Like I was pleased you know the Schadenfreude me was pleased that something that that it went horribly wrong because of what the particular decisions were being made policy wise, but the fact that it was then immediately you know oh no everything has to be reversed and made back to the normal and everything's fine is also not particularly healthy so it's like nothing really good happened in that in that uh in that sort of um that statement really it was it was a kind of a negative outcome you gave a couple of interesting examples in the piece of of two very grand kind of plc type institutions that are alas no more um ici um and and gc general electric company and and um well, ici's imperial chemical industries isn't it uh slightly dubiously named now in benefit of hindsight but talk about these two companies very i mean in the context of again these are both episodes in and of themselves if we get interested in it but talk about why these are relevant examples as to how some of the problems with that that way of thinking that we talked about with treasury so the story that if you talk if you take a, a an economist like john Kay who talks about ici quite a lot 
the story he tells is, you know, you had this great company built on the appliance of science, the appliance of chemical engineering to, 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 do, to do great things. Um, the story John tells is that, you know, over the, as the 80s turned into the 90s, ICI decided that actually they wanted to focus more aggressively on shareholder value, on the kind of the metrics, mm. um, to kind of follow what was very much seen as the right thing to do for businesses at the time. They kind of divested a lot of businesses. They cut back. They focused on making money rather than on making great chemicals. Yeah. With making money as a kind of a bleak objective. Yeah. And uh, in the end, they kind of uh, that didn't serve them well, and they kind of um, they 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 fell from glory to some extent. Um, GC kind of somewhat similar story again, a very large company which um, got much more interested in financial engineering in um they went on a big dot-com spending spree yeah. in the 1990s which you kind of was did not go well ended up not working out well <laughs> yeah. for them they yeah. turned into marconi and marconi i think is is, is it's either no longer with us or it's a, a, a penny stock or, or something like that so these are kind of two examples of you know commonly held stories in the business world about what happens when the accountants as it were get to get too powerful and it kind of explains, I mean, you could, I mean, possibly almost too easily draw very direct parallels to the fact that we, you know, we've talked, we've had a, a country that has talked about fiscal prudence for a very long time without really doing the, 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 the what do we do bit? Like, yeah, but we should do something. Our country should do something. You know, it should, you know, we should grow our economy. We should have more transport. We should expand the NHS. And actually through doing those things, you grow the economy. Actually, you build fortune on fortune at that point. It's very much been the, that 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 sort of no no protectionist view that no no we've just got to be very very tight fisted and and that's how we survive rather than no we survive by which is interesting because we we get we get discussions about the the, the entrepreneurial spirit of, spirit of 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 modern government and yet as a country we we seem to have taken a very conservative little c conservative approach if we were thinking of the UK as a as a PLC we seem to have taken a very protectionist approach rather than a you know if, if the uk was a plc we are doing the ici and the gc thing we're kind of trundling along at the bottom without really expanding and thinking about what we do as a country at, at writ large exactly. arguably you know yeah and i mean it's interesting i i, I remember a, an old board member of mine who was the cfo of a company called johnson Matthew, who a big global company who make uh athletic or chemicals are going to catalytic converters very very successful company you know hugely valuable um one of these big companies you've never heard of yeah. and he was told this is an interesting way he basically said you know if you're running a public company you've absolutely got to have the confidence of your investors or your com the confidence of your 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 bondholders you can't just kind of wing it um and say that it doesn't matter but the point is you 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 win that trust in order to do great things in order to grow the company in order to grow to grow the value of the company and to to, to invest in good projects and you know if you don't have that trust no one will no one will trust you or give you the the, the leeway to do those things but it's realizing that they're that you're doing it for a reason not for kind of financial engineering financial management for its own sake yes. yeah 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 absolutely so uh, you you gave another interesting analogy which which started to come a bit closer to to the world that we're familiar with which is for everyone who's going to let out a big groan partly because you know motorways are bad yeah fine but the m25 example is a fun one because you said treasury essentially were pretty confident that you would only need two lanes for the entire m25 um 
which I mean, to be fair, they're actually right on that, but for not the right reasons. They're, they're, they're right on it from a transport and an environmental pr- perspective because you'd constrain the use of it. But from, <laughs> from, from, a, from a growth perspective, it, you know, they're hopelessly underestimating how much that road would get used. So, and, and that works, okay, bad for motorways, but that absolutely applies to things like railways, railway expansion, railway upgrades. Um, so it's interesting that you picked on this, this example, the M25. Which, is, is that a common one that, bounces, that, that you've heard and has bounced around then, that, that 1980s M25 analogy? It's it's a, it's a common one, and it's one that I think I've I've people have accused people have sometimes described it as an urban myth. It's quite hard to get to the bottom yeah. of it, but I think it's <laughs> when you talk to people who've been around, there is generally a view that the treasurer are at least very sniffy about the need for for, for more than two lanes on the M25. And I guess I mean one of the things that's interesting here, you know, maybe we could talk about more is that sometimes this leads to quite a penny penny wise pound foolish attitude. Yeah. Yep. Because you know, going back to this idea of debt to GDP. Um, you know, one way to keep down debt is not to invest in anything, you know, because you, you, you don't generate the credit, so you don't generate the debit. You don't generate the assets, so you yeah. don't generate the liability. And, um, you know, it's something that I'm sure you, you're, you've talked a lot about in this program. I know my friend Tom Forth talks about a lot, yes. this question <laughs> that you can, you can have a, if you're thinking about public transport, you can spend you can reduce your capital budget by having you know small buses and non-electrified rail lines but you that costs a lot to operate yeah. your, your 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 amount of passengers you get per, per, per pound in your operating budget is is very low and um it's kind of an interesting thing that to some extent that kind of mindset in the treasury about the capital budget is um maybe drive some of these decisions yeah absolutely um and so it kind of leads on to a point if we were going to come bring it to the railways um, not least because I wanted an excuse. You, you did mention a transport thing right, on Twitter earlier, and you were like, oh, hopefully we'll talk about this. Well, this is a chance for us to talk about bionic duckweed. And, and you touched on that. You touched on it perfectly there with um, the electrification analogy. And that, you know, these, the, the 365s are pretty good electric trains, and they are being scrapped in their entirety as a fleet, um, way short of their full life expectancy. And, and kind of the point of trains is that you build them, and they last for 40 years and, and run really well, and that kind of the fact that they are a bit resource intensive to build in the first place, they're quite complicated. You ameliorate that over the fact they have a 40 year life, whereas cars have, you know, a five year life. Um, and right. here they are being scrapped and chewed up because government didn't want to do electrification. Uh, and and <laughs> yeah, so it's, um, yeah, yeah it's interesting. I, Sorry, go on. It's a sad story, by the way. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's one of these challenges where you have, you know, it's exactly as you described. Government sees electrification as a major upfront uh, investment. It doesn't feel like it gets the, the the it doesn't feel like it can see what those benefits are because it doesn't measure. You know, partly the green book doesn't measure things over a long enough time horizon for this sort of investment. But also, um, you know, and, and then you get the other thing. It's almost then it, it it creates some of the attitudes within the other departments as well because within Network Rail, within the Department for Transport, you get this. Oh no, we have to show to Treasury that we can cut our cloth more cost effectively and, and be cheaper it's like well no we've, we've been doing that forever and treasury will always ask for us to just cut costs more so actually we need if we just keep fighting if we continue to speak that language we're just going to con- you know we wonder why productivity uh, and, and and growth are pretty stagnant in the uk and it's and, and you compare you know public transport investment is one narrow but 
fairly sizable example where we don't invest as much or we don't get as much out of the investment we make. Let's put it that way. We don't get as much out of the investments we make in the UK compared to other countries. Um, and that has an impact on productivity. Public transport, you look to the London, there's the other analogy is that people say, oh, you know, you have to spend a lot on public transport in London because the city's very busy. It's obviously it's an economic powerhouse. It's like, no, flip that on its head. London is busy, successful, and is an economic powerhouse because it has very good public transport. A load of other stuff that's spatially related to that, but the fact that it has very good public transport is not a happy coincidence, and it's not a th- it, 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 that's, that's a reason why it works so well. Um, and I and I feel like the way that treasury is structured, it, you come back to incentives. That word incentives, the incentives are not right to actually unlock that opportunity. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think this is partly just a consequence of having these three quite different functions. Mm altogether, which kind of does two things. Firstly, it makes the mindset spill over. So your people who would otherwise be thinking fully about economic growth are surrounded by a culture that focuses a lot on financial management. But also the other thing, this comes back to what you're saying about the influence of other departments, is that it makes the Treasury an unusually powerful place. Um, So, you know, many, many years ago, I worked briefly at the Treasury. I have nothing but good things to say about the talent and, you know, commitment to public service of every Treasury employee that I can think of that I worked. You know, these are great people. And, you know, as citizens of the UK, we should be thrilled that they are, you know, happy to serve their country for, 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 for their job. You know, they are fundamentally talented people. But the problem is, if you get a department that has all this power, um, it attracts the talented people to it. And, you know, they then go and evangelize that culture elsewhere. Yeah. So for a long time, it was a very traditional route to um, if you were going to be a permanent secretary, the most senior civil servant in the department. A lot of those permanent secretaries often came from the Treasury. Probably a little bit less true now, but traditionally that was that was the way things go. Um, people often leave the Treasury and get promoted into big jobs elsewhere. And um, so you and and, you know, they are smart people. So they often win arguments when the Treasury has arguments with uh, has arguments with other departments (laughs) so you know they there's something about it's not just the combination of things creating a kind of merged mindset but it's also the fact that it creates a really big center of power conscious above its weight in whitehall firms and it's interesting and and it's some of the interesting side effects so we come back to to your bionic duckweed um sort of uh story electrification you know electrification is a good sort of thread through it's only one very narrow facet but it's kind of an interesting thing to talk about because it involves some of these themes of capital investment uh long-term amelioration you know net present value sort of um, return on investment that is longer term but but pretty measurable pretty tangible yeah. what's interesting is that through some of that group think that you describe some of the stuff that does propagate out is that okay electrification doesn't succeed but sort of slightly fancier type solutions like hydrogen battery biodiesel by late 2000s it was biodiesel we've moved on from that now that was where bionic that was where roger ford came up with the yeah. bionic duckweed thing right but um but now we've got to be honest similar things you know germany's just finished a study showing that hydrogen's a waste of time over a long period of time because it just is way more cost of, costly than than conventional electrification these things seem yeah. to they, Hydro- these things seem to shoot out yeah. these, these things seem to escape from that orbit whereas the the more practical grounded if you like am versus fm actual machines versus um effing magic the, the the am stuff never sort of escapes escapes orbit but the kind of the fm stuff which that that seems to shoot outwards and, and is enabled you know things like um jet zero and, and some of these things that that feel like a, a positive thing but actually don't really have any particular economic merit it's interesting that those That's things really end up flying out 
So I think I, I, my, so I've got a theory about where that comes from. Mm. And, you know, this is, as I said earlier, kind of tech policy and science policy is really my, the thing, my, my background. And it's really interesting. If you look at how the Treasury has moved on science policy over the years, they've always been pretty in favor of public funding of R&D. Mm. Um, but, you know, over the last kind of, let's say, 10 years, we've gone from a kind of flat cash settlement on public R&D spending to, you know, really a pretty good settlement. I mean, if you ask my colleagues in science policy, they'll go, oh, it's very difficult. It's a very tricky settlement. But if you compare it to 2012, things are much, much better. There's much more political consensus, both in the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, that it's really important to generously fund, publicly yeah, fund yeah. science. That's all good. Now, if you look at where that has worked in the Treasury, the Treasury have always been pretty on side with this kind of thing. And I think there's two reasons for that, which have a bit of a bearing on these transport questions as well. Uh, yeah. The first is that public funding of R&D is a really nice fit for a kind of economic, a sort of market liberal economics 101 framework. You know, this is stuff that we've known about in economics since Kenneth Arrow back in the 1950s, the argument that investment in R&D has spillovers and therefore there's a very strong case of public subsidy of it. That is something that, you know, you get 100 economists in a room, I imagine 98 of them would find that pretty uncontroversial. And, um, you know, if you've got a department that thinks primarily through an economic mindset, that 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 makes sense and i think with capital investment in already existing technologies i'm not saying the treasury don't think that's important but it's a little it's a little bit less of an easy fit you know there are there are there are okay. some alternative yeah. views and then i think the other thing this comes back to the accountant thing one thing that i always remember hearing from the treasury about science funding is if you tell bays the department that does science if you tell them they can spend you know a billion pounds on r&d they jolly well spend a billion pounds on R&D in the next year. Because basically, it's, you, I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm trivializing it, but the different, the, it's, quite, it's quite an easy leap between making the allocation and actually spending Yeah, the, the lead money. times on actually spurning that cash are quite short, right? It, 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 exactly. You don't have something where you, you, you allocate a billion pounds for a new rail line and someone discovers a rare newt or something like that. There are, or, you know, the planning inspector and objects. Yeah, yeah generally the the and you know on the one hand you think well that's what, what is what is he talking about because surely the government doesn't like their money being spent but actually this is the accountant mindset once mm. you say you're going to spend the money the accountant really wants you to yeah. say you're going to do all these careful plans and then find you've got 500 million pounds left over because you can't spend it yeah, yeah so that, that's, you know yeah. that's that, so that is something that you know has helped science generally um the politics have aligned as well but i can totally see why transport also for defense defense spending is very lumpy and defense spending yes. has always had a real problem with the treasury from this point of view so um you will probably know transport examples that fit this but the 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 mod examples i hear about are where you often have these kind of big defense procurement projects that rather than the treasury being able to say okay well we'll commit you know let's say a billion in year five and that will be a big lumpy investment that'll last us for a long time they sort of say well actually we want a smooth spending profile over a 10-year period and it turns out that spreading that over 10 years doesn't cost you 100 million a year it costs you 200 million a year yes, so it ends it up being more bit, expensive yeah, yeah, yeah. to spread um so there's a there's some sort of techie accounting stuff i think that drives some of those problems yeah it's as interesting because well. it's as, as an industry certainly the railways we're 
pushing as an industry to do more stuff as rolling programs that would be smoother. So there is a synergy there in what de- generally works best for civil engineering delivery for railways. Things like electrification, accessibility, these actually do work better as a, a more of a smooth program. But the challenge is that they work as a smooth program if you've guaranteed the fact that it will continue to be a program in perpetuity. And that's where that that's where it unsticks, I think. So yeah, so, so on this one, you kind of, all of this discussion, you can you you capture it and I capture it often as short termism. Right? It's short termism. Um, maybe that some might argue that's an oversimplification, but I think that quite neatly captures what we just talked about. The other thing, and this is we don't have to do as many analogies for this, as as you describe, um, Treasury likes its theatre. It likes its dramatic biannual or 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 you know twice annual sort of announcement of what the magical things it's going to do are. Um, this gives everyone a sense of that they're doing something very impressive and important. Um, and it's very dramatic and everyone gets very excited and the press love it. And so it's all, it's like a bit of a, a feedback loop. So you get this political theatre. And then you quite neatly describe this this sort of combination of these two. So short-termism plus this sort of political theatre. These two uh, complement each other in an unhelpful way, which is where you get what I really like, this phrase, I love this phrase, policy wheezes. Such a nice, <laughs> so um, I've got an analogy of the integrated rail plan as an example of a policy wheeze, but talk about policy wheezes and, and, and kind of how you see this little equation of yours, uh, kind of how that manifests and what that looks like. Yeah, so as you said, the Treasury kind of has these rabbit out of a hat moments that happen either once a year or twice a year, depending on how things have been organised. And these are really politically valuable. They're very politically valuable for whoever happens to be chancellor at the given time, because yes. if they put him or her, I guess it's usually him, on the, in the, you know, he controls the media agenda for the whole week before and the whole week afterwards, which is politicians are strongly incentivized yeah, to do. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, it's obsessively covered in a way that most politicians, even most prime ministers, could 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 only dream of. Yeah. Um, so it's something that people are very un- uh, politicians would be very unwilling to give that up. Mm-hmm. But it yeah. then does create this kind of incentive to come up with stuff to put in the budget. And you know, when you see the coverage of budget speeches, there's always this. The journalists always want surprises. You know, there's always this balance of what's going to be briefed out before, what's going to be briefed out afterwards. There's now a kind of a mini line in sort of Thing, well what's going to unravel what's yes. what's not going to work out you know from the pasty tax onwards and um yeah. you know this is this is not how you would arrange it if what you cared about was pure technocratic good governance um so this is this 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 is a challenge and you get lots of weird little things being dreamt up often reinventing the wheel often developing the same program that's already been developed um yeah. with subscale and i think one thing i've noticed is that you know, you can find a lot of sensible people out there who don't think we should abolish the Treasury. But most of those people would agree that the budget framework and the kind of rabbit and hat mentality that it creates is definitely bad. So this is yeah. there's a very big tent on this one. Yeah. And it, and it's it's that short term. It's, it's undoing the short termism. It just does not. Well, in fact, so, so the integrated rail plan I shove here as an example of of one of those wheezes, a big dramatic thing that should have been considered as a this is our strategy long term and actually ended up being here's a big hit dramatic thing that we're, that's going to become a big political football. And, and, and that's really problematic for all sorts of reasons as a result. And, and although the main reason that the, the integrated rail plan was very loud, made a lot of people very unhappy was, was the fact that it tore up 10 plus years of consensus building across parties, across organisations, across all levels of government. Um, I think a secondary reason to that is the fact that um, because 
it, it was a lot. 96 billion, as was the headline figure, is a lot of money. I think that the thing that was upsetting was was the fact that it had become this big hit that was a political football again, rather than rather than like here's the long term strategy here, you know. Um, and 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 this. So I've, I'm going to forgive me. I'm going to quote you back at you here. Um, I'm going full. Um, uh, full trash future with it. I'm going to read bits of the article back to you because I think this is really there are two quotes that are a really neat um, little capturing of the problems with this. So you talk about the fact that the damage that this causes is is more deeply seated. It makes policymaking more volatile, less consultative. So it's harder to make the kind of long term partnerships necessary for effective industrial strategy, serious public service reform, or devolution to cities and towns. So that touches on several things that, as rail natter, we care a lot about. Uh, you know, service, public service reform, devolution to cities and towns, and industrial strategy are all transport things. They're all rail things. So, those for those to be made difficult or impossible is, yeah, that's 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 really critical. And then the next quote, uh, and then and then we can kind of pick through those a bit, is the fact that it it also disempowers other government departments, which puts civil servants who are often experts in their field at the mercy of as as you as you always point out brilliant but inexperienced young treasury officials so there's two things there the first quote i think really captures the the problems with the short termism and then the consequences that that cascades through government um i don't know if you want to pick up on those quotes but for me they really they really they really get to the nub of it yeah that's right i think this question about how how you can build long term partnerships is it's just a hugely important one and i see it a lot in as you said their industrial strategy you look at sectors like um the life sciences sector, you mm-hmm. look at, say, the automotive sector or the aerospace sector. My view is that, you know, good government policy in those sectors is basically about helping the industry, working very collaboratively with the industry to knit together supply chains, to invest in skills. It's quite a, I mean, it's what, it's what free marketeers would derisively call a corporatist policy. And I think yeah. there's probably a lot of the economy where you, that you don't want to run like that. But if you're talking about things like automotive and aerospace involving huge capital investments, quite sort of big supply chains that you kind of want to try and, you know, attract into your country. Actually, those kind and 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 often, um, you know, public investments, whether that's in things like R&D or, or applied innovation, um, it is pretty useful to be able to have strong, strong deals and relationships and and organizations like the office of life science or some of the things that go that go on in the automotive aerospace industry to make those things work and the treasury is i think often quite suspicious of those things Mm. partly because they don't quite fit into a sort of a a, an easily legible traditional economic model they're they're quite they're 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 quite heterodox from an economic Yeah, yeah, yeah from an economic point of view and partly because they require you to tie your hands. So if you suddenly have, if what you want is to preserve your fiscal um, room for manoeuvre, because who knows when the next crisis will come? Who knows when the, when the bond market <laughs> well, yeah. will get spooked? Then um, the last thing you want to do is to have made some kind of incredibly significant commitment to, um, to uh, you know, the aerospace sector. Yeah, it's interesting because it's, and this is the reality that we're in: is that, that there's an idea that you can step back and and, and have a, a wonderful free market economy. When, unfortunately, well, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, the reality is that so many sectors, exactly aerospace, good example, automotive, are entirely at the whim at the whim of enormous sweeping um, global policy decisions and things like the, the the fact that we need to electrify everything that moves. You know, all of these things that you cannot. They, they they do not exist in a vacuum. There, there is there has to be that interrelationship between 
public private between state and, and, and industry um and to pretend that there isn't and that it's really hands off is part of the reason why the rail industry is in the mess it is in because there's this dichotomy of government having more control than it's ever had before combined with um you can all hear the beeping of skype we'll, we'll get steen back momentarily i'm sure someone's kicked the router it's pretty freewheeling um you know it's, obviously there's nothing, nowhere where the state doesn't play any role at yeah. all but the fact that we're quite hands off, I think, has worked quite well. And some of the things that have gone on in Europe with, you know, the way the Horizon program has tried to directly impact on tech, I think, you know, that for a lot of that has been a bit of a misadventure. So I'm not sort of saying the entire economy should be run this way. Mm. But there are definitely, it feels to me that there are bits of the UK economy that have succeeded because industrial strategy was 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 done well for a yeah. period of time. And that that that's, I think, something that it doesn't necessarily come naturally to the Treasury. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's... I suppose, yeah, mission. Uh, some element of the mission-oriented stuff. So, so climate policy has almost been helpful as being a, a thing that kind of directs activity of both, uh, you know, the public sector and, and private sector and both state and um, and and industry. Yeah, there is. It's as you say, it's heteronormative. That's the challenge. It doesn't neatly fit into a, a kind of the, the transactional economic framework that, that's perhaps uh, the the norm um, that, that some of these treasury officials work within. So let's let's press on. Oh, this phrase, which I like a lot, which is one that you pick up on: inherent pessimism. Tell us about inherent pessimism and how that, how that slides into the equation. So you know, we talked earlier about the kind of the, the finance director and the business development director, and you know there are there are different mindsets. Debt investors and equity investors they see the world in a different way, and they do that kind of rightly because you know there that the, it's it's good to have these these perspectives. Now on the one hand, it is actually very useful to have a department like the treasury that will you know not to put too fine a point on it call bullshit on schemes that are poorly thought out. So we all know that. Um, there are schemes that probably shouldn't be backed, and um, they're sometimes extremely appealing to political entrepreneurs, policy entrepreneurs within within government. So it is good to have a bunch of very smart, kind of quite hard boiled people who will say, you know, is this you know battery factory that you're suggesting we build in the UK is this really a good use yeah. of taxpayers' money, <laughs> or you know, is um, yeah, I'm sure we can we can we can think of plenty of other examples. Um, you know, you don't you. It is definitely possible to go far, to, to go too far, and there is a history, including in the UK, of building kind of white elephants that that that, that the economy would have been much better off without. Um, nevertheless, this is kind of a matter of degree. <laughs> you you yeah. you don't. If the pessimism gets too strong, then you're back in that world of basically running the company, running the country like it's a distressed company that only cares about debt service. And um, I think what are, the 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 issue with the Treasury here is not that the Treasury has this mindset. I'm absolutely thrilled as a citizen, as a taxpayer, that there are some people looking out for looking out for bad wheezes in government and that, that they have some power to do that. But the question of having those people combined with the Economic Growth Directorate and in such a powerful position in government, I think I would argue that maybe that has gone a little too far. Yeah, the, the, the power, the dial of power is, is too far in, in, in the direction of, of the conservatism as to what gets invested in. So, so the question comes, and we've got a few, we've got quite a few questions have pinged in, actually. I'm, I'm going to pick some points up. So Richard Smith is saying, uh, the Treasury also fears accumulating assets in public hands, even where that might be more efficient. Uh, this is an issue uh, with, for example, um, uh, railway signaling, where mergers can make crucial technology obsolete or unsupported. 
yeah, that's that's an interesting point, Richard. I, I think. Yeah, well, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, accumulating There's assets a bit of in a public hands. Is that, yeah, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess this, this goes hand in hand with what you were saying about debt earlier, because it's a kind of um, a, either suspicion or kind of lack of interest in the asset side of the balance sheet. Um, and this was, um, it was interesting. Uh, there was a Philip Hammond's old special advisor, a guy called Tim Pitt, who is more pro treasury and I think more skeptical of a kind of economic growth agenda than I am. But he recently put out a report saying, actually, well, it would be really good if the Treasury thought about investment in skills as something positive that sits on our balance sheet. And, you know, I think that's that's kind yeah. of skills and railway signals are quite different. But the underlying philosophy is, is quite similar there that, you know, we need to think that assets are good, you know, and it, if the country develops some assets, we should be happy about that. We shouldn't think of that as sort of something that's bad because it involves debt or spending to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. So, what can be done? The last kind of point, what can be done? Um, so, here we, we, we bring the Treasury back in its kind of nominal three bits. Um, and, well, I've kind of graphicified what you suggest. So, and, and I know that one of these is maybe not quite actually precisely what you suggest. Um, and you can correct me on it. The first one is, is what do we do with Treasury? Well, firstly, you, you abolish the Treasury. You know, we're, that's the whole point of the episode, right? Fine. But what does that materially look like? Because you can't eradicate, as people often say, oh, you can't get rid of the Treasury. So I'm not saying you just get rid of those functions. No, no, no. All of the functions have to exist in some form. It's just about how they're related to each other and how, how you split them up. And, and what you suggest is kind of fairly logically splitting them up, right? So you, you kind of tear the paper into three bits and then go through. So go through. So first of all, the budgetary ministry, what would you do with the... So that's, again, that's the suggesting how much we uh, spend on things and, and what we buy and what goes on the on the kind of the shopping list. Um, I'm shoving cabinet so, office up there, which I think is what you suggest, right? Yeah, basically. So that if you... Um, so in the US, um, in the US, there is something called the Office of Management and Budget, which basically does the budget and kind of oversees public services. In a sense, this was a little bit of like what Gordon Brown tried to do when he ran the Treasury. He kind of used the budgetary ministry as a very aggressive performance management tool. Um, but arguably, the Treasury wasn't the right place to do that. And that was kind of an artifact of the kind of Gordon Brown, Tony Blair. Wars. <laughs> yes. But, yeah. You know, it's it's I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to remark that the cabinet office has a lot of issues. It's kind of a weird amalgam of different creatures. Um, number 10 is kind of an unusually powerless center of government if you compare it to other countries. Yeah. And what you know, I would propose doing here is to solve this at one stroke, turn <laughs> number 10, the cabinet office, and the budgetary bit of the treasury into a kind of office of management budget, a sort of a true cockpit and control room for UK public services, making the budgetary apportionment decisions and actually giving some levers of control back to the center from that point of view this is a would be a very big change in its yeah. own right and certainly people who are less radical than i am on breaking up the treasury um i think have also sort of made this point people like the institute for government have said yes. wow the cabinet office is unusually weak and does need more more levers and strings to pull yeah yeah so then the next one i think is where i've so I was trying to, I was basically, I, I put H HMRC in here of what you do with the financial ministry. Cause I was like, well, actually nothing really exists that, that would 
fulfill this what you describe as to what to do with the the taxation element of put simplistically the taxation yeah. element of, of of treasury but there, so it might not be hmrc but what, what, what would you do with that element the taxation there, the financial there bits there. i mean i i i could imagine keeping this as a kind of a small body that handles you know public credit um and things like debt management and potentially also runs tax i mean my take on tax policy is um this is going to sound very technocratic again but we actually kind of know what optimal tax policy looks like to some extent I mean, that's not the question of how high should taxes be but we know what we know we've got a lot of taxes that are really bad taxes as in for every pound they generate they cause a lot of pain and damage to the economy yeah, yeah. and we've got some taxes that are that are good now obviously there's lots of distributional questions but you can solve the distributional the dis- distributional questions are a political question that you can solve by raising or lowering the numbers the decision to have say stamp duty is a big tax where stamp duty discourages people moving houses, moving house, gums up the real estate market, basically limits economic growth because people can't move to opportunity, keeps older people in houses bigger than they need, does lots of really, really bad things. That is not a controversial point among economists or tax specialists that we've got some taxes like that that are really bad. There was a wonderful review done by the Institute of Fiscal Studies chaired by James Mearley, a Nobel laureate um, a few years ago, that basically designed the kind of wonks wet green tax policy um and from my point of view if i were if i were king for a day i would say look let's just put in place a program to move our tax policy to that this doesn't need to be hugely political you could have a department doing this doing debt management that is now no longer the government's kind of spending watchdog and it's no longer the economic growth department it's just doing something really worthy really dry and really technical so would that it would almost be like a non-ministerial treasury if you want yeah yeah but but essentially it would be like a non-ministerial department type situation do you think it would potentially i mean i think you probably so if you look at somewhere like i mean we might want to come to this later but if you look at somewhere like australia that did a split like this way back in the day they kind of the treasury name and you know maybe we save a little bit on head note paper that way uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah all of rishi sunak's super fancy treasury stuff that he did to like update the graphics we can keep on ah, that. keep yeah, that stuff fun. keep it all keep it all um, uh, it's a nice I, logo uh, yeah. and then the economics ministry That's um it. so we as you say we we've got a department for business energy industrial strategy at the moment it's been an interesting it's been interesting what's happened to that department over the last five years because that has partly because of net zero and partly because of the kind of current energy woes that yeah. has really changed to become it was once a department for industrial strategy it's now kind of the energy and net zero department now its biggest spending item is stuff like science and research and innovation but in terms of what the impression i get that people spend their time on it's 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 energy now yeah, okay yeah what you could do there is you could say look energy and net zero are such a big deal that should be a department of its own right and obviously it was not that long ago we had debt department debt, of energy and climate change yeah. so you 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 kind of you create an energy or energy and net zero department and let that do its thing rather than kind of taking over an existing department and then you have an economic growth department which does the the the, the, the business stuff the industrial strategy stuff all the research and innovation funding but actually is more powerful and has that has that growth agenda yeah. i think the trick of making that work um it's, it's worth looking at which secretaries of state for business have really driven things forward have been quite powerful. And, you know, across the political spectrum, you've got people like Peter Mandelson for Labour, um, uh, Michael Heseltine for the Conservatives, who, um, who were sufficiently kind of big beasts 
sufficiently good at managing a complex brief and sufficiently dynamic to make that work. So, you know, you don't want this economics ministry to become a backwater, which is kind of where it was when Harold Wilson made the split. But if you can get it right, this could be a real power, a real powerhouse yeah, of growth. Yeah. And it's and it's part as you talked about, you know, you've got these people. It, it, the Treasury is a desirable, a bit like FCO. Treasury is a very desirable minister, minister kind of ministry to be in, a desirable department to be in. Um, if you can continue to carry some of that kudos across these three split or these changed departments, then then you can continue to, continue to have skilled people, and therefore, even if you didn't have a particularly strong minister, if you have a strong civil service, a strong private secretary, etc., then then they can still continue doing what they need to do. Um, but yeah. the question then comes: Is okay? Well, that that's a bit of a plan, but is it? Well, you touched on Harold Wilson, which we will will put his, his lovely face up in a second. But is it um, is it impossible? Is it unprecedented? To which, well, no. Uh, but so we'll leave Harold Wilson's face up, and you talk about exp- perhaps explain why Har- Har- Howard Wilson is uh, Harold Wilson is there. I don't know who Howard Wilson is. Um, is is, is long lost brother? Um, but uh, what you know is it is it unprecedented? Is this impossible? Could could it happen? Is it is it realistic that it could happen? So um, I I very grateful for you know bringing up Harold Wilson again because he was I don't know how well known this is he was a president of the Royal Statistical Society as well as various ah, other public well, there you go. He, may have, he may have held <laughs> he um in his retirement he always knew when it was time to leave a drinks reception because he got his secretary to make him say Royal Statistical Society and if he could no longer say it he had, <laughs> too many drinks, had to go home um anyway good old Harold Wilson he did try to do this in the 1960s he split up the treasury into the Treasury and the Department of Economic Affairs, run by George Brown. And what at this point, whenever I talk about breaking up the Treasury, there's a certain sort of person who says, well, look, Harold Wilson tried this and it didn't work. And it's true, it didn't work. So the Treasury mm. kind of won out. Yeah, they um, just reclaimed it all and it left a husk behind, which then they, eventually they, just They evaporated. reclaimed it. So the, the Wilson government published this document, which I have a kind of old, well-thumbed copy of, the 1965 uh, National Plan, which is a kind of industrial strategy for the country and is in this kind of wonderful 1960s HMSO font. Yeah. Um, you know, they had these kind of grand white heat of technology yeah, visions. Exactly. Yeah. Didn't quite work out uh, for all sorts of reasons. Partly some of the ideas were probably not great. Partly there was a currency crisis, so you know this was this 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 was this this didn't for, for, for the most part work out. But I think you know that is a you know, one of the lessons. One of the things I always think is interesting looking at the technology industry is just because something doesn't work once doesn't mean it's a bad idea. You know, you see things like um, web van doesn't work, but now we're all ordering our groceries online. So you know yeah. there's um, you, there's a risk of over inferring from these things about what doesn't work. And you know if we look at say Australia. Australia did split up its treasury. Um, the, uh, the prime minister back in the 70s had an argument with the treasury about uh, planning to devalue the Australian dollar. Treasury tried to sabotage his efforts. And he basically said, right, I'm going to split you up and get my own economic advice and have a more growth oriented um, policy. And that has carried on to this day. Um, Germany obviously has a powerful separate economics ministry. Japan does. Canada the U.S. has their Office of Management and yeah. the Budget. Obviously, they have, a, they have a different system in in, in many ways, but um, they they clearly do things slightly differently, and their Treasury is a relatively less powerful department. So um, there are we can it's you know the, the Harold Wilson experience 
was not a does not cover this idea in glory but it's yeah. but it's certainly wrong to say that this hasn't worked anywhere because in some senses our situation in the uk is the exception rather than the norm yeah yeah and it should and, and you cannot argue that what we have now is is functional you know lots of people from with lots of different hats lots of different sort of life experiences rosette colors agree that what the current situation is is not optimal um, and, and what yeah. was interesting was that, okay, uh, politics to one side, at least one, if not two of the, uh, definitely one, I think was it Suella Braverman, um, who, one of her policies was to break up the Treasury. You know, well, uh, I think it was Kemi, but oh, I don't know about Suella. It was bad enough. No, you're right, it was Kemi. Yes, forgive me. And I think, you know, this is a Michael Gove thing. But as you say, this is not a, this is not a particularly a Tory idea. You know, if you... Um, John McDonnell was yeah. very keen on this, did a, yeah. a, a big inquiry into it. And I think people who are kind of associated with that wing of the Labour Party um, quite supportive of this idea. Um, Tony Blair was very into it. So Jonathan Powell, Tony Blair's chief of staff, was had the button ready to go on a um, on a plan to break up the Treasury. And they just didn't think they could do it with Gordon Brown in, in, yeah. in, in place. <laughs> yes. um, I know very good Lib Dems who are in favour of this. And, of course, it was a big Dominic Cummings idea as well. Yeah. So uh, I can't imagine many of your listeners will admire all those names I've just listed. <laughs> maybe, maybe none of them. But it certainly shows that there is the a kind is of... A, it's, a, a, it's a widely explored idea across political boundaries, across, across organisational boundaries, um, and for all sorts of different reasons, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the... So when I wrote this report, first of all, a decade or so ago, my co-author, Giles Wilkes, he, I think, since has sort of recanted a little bit, has decided, well, actually, you know, breaking up the Treasury might cause more harm than good. And I think there is a respectable view that just sort of is a small C conservative point of view that says the Treasury does play various useful roles in scrutiny and, you know, keep a hold of nurse to finding something worse you know you could things things could go wrong if that if, if, if that role goes and you know i i i sympathize with that view that's not a not a not a stupid thing to to to, to believe but as you say it does feel that as a country we do need a path of economic growth and there are ways of of, of doing this that that, that 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 could work so i'm kind of a, a an optimist on this policy yeah it's like the opportunity is there to do something different and and the and any crash is not likely to be particularly more dramatic than the one we had a couple of months ago so you know we've we're already submitting ourselves to enormous economic shocks from from radical changes in direction that this, this this would be fair, fairly small beans by comparison so and it comes back to incentives i i like this word incentives that you that you talk about it's 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 a good it's a good sort of idea of you know what are the you know that 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 idea of incentives and the intersection of those three different very distinct functions creating the wrong incentives and um, we want to create the right incentives the right incentives for both the public sector to be able to to thrive for the private sector to be able to thrive um, as and where it needs to for us to kind of all be facing the same direction um, and and one example I was going to talk more about this but actually we're running out of time so I'm going to very briefly allude to it next year is the is is you know, it's it's 30 years since the Railways Act 1993, which which nominally privatised the, the rail network by weirdly putting it into greater government control than it had ever been under before. Um, so we're going to talk about that. But Treasury was instrumental in writing that structure, which has now collapsed in on itself. Uh, and so there's, there's, that's just a tease for the future. We're, we could have talked about it, but actually, I think we'll pause it, Stian, because I'm, I'm using up your evening. So there we are. That's the Abolish the Treasury episode. Um, 
Uh, we'll, we'll do some outro and then we'll, if you've got questions, chuck them over. We've got, we've, we, well, I'm, I'm eating into Stin's time, but if, if you've got questions, chuck them in. Um, we'll do the outro bit and then we will, uh, we'll come back to some questions. So, um, uh, as ever, this is available on all good podcasting platforms. Thanks for listening, folks. This is quite, uh, quite a good one, I think, for, for audio only. Uh, yes, there are some fun graphics, but actually I think it, it's quite a nice discursive one. Um, uh, patreon.com slash Gareth Dennis to support this continue to happen paypal.me slash Gareth Dennis for loose change and abuse and garethdennis.co.uk slash discord for the YouTube chat to continue onwards um, on the discord service come and do that um, shout out to the RMT to the CWU um, all of those who are out on strike at the moment I think also highways workers are out on strike baggage handlers are out on strike um, nurses are out on strike early in the week uh, there are lots of bus drivers out on strike at the moment for Arriva, I think. There are strike go to Strike Map to find 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 out where strikes are and how you can support them. Um, you know, there are strike funds, uh, all sorts of things you can do to support, but shout out to everyone who's out on strike and um best of luck. Restarting the future. Stian, this this is um this is your book that's uh, that you've written with um, with Jonathan Haskell. Um how to fix the intangible economy. For, uh, briefly, tell us about this book because it looks like the sort of thing that's right up quite a lot of people who uh, who watch Rail Nightmare Street, actually. I really hope so. So this is a book about how the economy has been changing over the years to be something that relies a lot on things you can't touch and feel, um, whether that's R&D, data, electronic signals, brands and emotions. And it sort of says, well, this has caused quite a lot of problems and a lot of teething troubles. How can we fix it? So there's quite a lot there on things like investment in transport that will be dear to your listeners' hearts, mm -hmm. quite yeah. a lot of stuff on planning and land use, quite a lot of uh, what we hope are kind of new ideas on how we can navigate these kind of changes to the economy. So, uh, yeah, if you get the chance to read it, I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, it sounds it sounds absolutely pressing, given that we're at a point where the economy has become real again, um, having, having been essentially not particularly real for quite a long time uh, with, you know, enormous amounts of free money coming from various you know, investment funds. That's kind of disappeared. The economy is real again, but but we're left with an, a thing that's propping up, as you say, intangibles, all sorts of stuff that none of us have any idea where it's coming from and what it what it is and, and how it works. Um, yeah, fascinating. I, I, I would strongly commend it to people. I'm going to be adding that to my uh, I'm adding that to my wish list to um, to buy. Available from all good um, all good bookstops wherever you buy books. Uh, next week's episode is a radical shift in tone uh, because we're we're uh, going to be talking about concrete sleepers. <laughs> people have been saying there's not been enough techie track or railway sort of episodes, and there are people who are wanting to hear about engineering and less about policy. Um, well, we've done a heavy policy episode because actually loads of you wanted this episode to happen. So um, I, hopefully you've enjoyed it but also there's going to be a, a, a radical shift to doing a techie episode about concrete sleepers so that's that's how flexible and durable the format is um i'm shaking my head as i say that um oh I, in fact i want to click this button here which is the two of us next to each other Stian, thank you so much for that um that's been absolutely brilliant um there are uh, questions so we did have one question which um which pinged up that was quite interesting but I, I, that you might want to just very briefly touch on i've taken already taken nearly 10 minutes of your time thanks so much for that um to what extent is the personality class between number 10 and number 11 so between the leadership of treasury you know that that role the exchequer to what extent does that also create problems and you've got a very powerful single role that as you say gets a lot of a lot of um uh press exposure arguably more than a PM ever does. Do you think that's part of it? Do you think that, or do you think that would kind of fix itself if we did a, a split the treasury up as, we, as we've talked about? What are your thoughts on it? I think it creates a political problem if you want to break up the treasury because 
who you appoint as chancellor is a huge bit of patronage for the yeah. prime minister. It's a great way of getting a really loyal lieutenant, which is kind of what Osborne was for yeah. Cameron. You know, they were this, the, you know, with Brown and Blair, it gave them it gave a kind of consolation prize for the one who didn't become leader. So, and you know, it's it's something that is it's something that's going to be a, will be a real challenge for you know if. Keir Starmer wanted to abolish the Treasury. I have no idea whether he does, but you know, you, it's an awkward question about well, what do you tell your shadow chancellor, and and, and yeah. um, how do you how do you how do you keep him on site? So the fact that it's powerful creates a challenge in a world where where prime ministers kind of live or die by their ability to dispense patronage. Yeah. Um, I think if you were able to break it up, if you can get to that world, then you're 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 in a good position because actually you can create alternative power bases. You can you can you the other roles become more important so that could all work quite well yeah um so uh jack elliott policy episodes are my favorite thanks jack uh richard smith thanks for that question which was way up in the episode but i thought it was an interesting one to ask at the end um dave suggests well deputy prime minister could become a real role i suppose it's that how does that, that that's a possibility but then how what power would it have it has to have some meaningful power and would they you know would you tie them perhaps to the economic growth you know, yeah, I think there's some yeah. some thoughts there because ultimately, you know, that that is an important role. The idea of of, of setting the direction that the country is going to go in and and how it's going to thrive feels like an important role. Um, in in a way, that's why the check the the, the chancellor of the exchequer role is important. Except that it's got all that other stuff bunged in with it. So I think they're opportun- It's not an insurmountable challenge, but it, it yeah it is a it is a, cha- a a problem. Um. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's some people. So Will Deacon's asking about devolution and how devolution ties into that, I suppose, favorably, because if you're devolving funding powers to regions, that 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 fits quite neatly with that 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 broken up structured treasury. Right. I think that's right. And it's a little bit it's a similar situation to where we are with industrial strategy. If you want to give away power to whether the city regions or, or parts of the country, you know, that constrains the treasury's freedom of action and the treasury doesn't like having its freedom of action constrained so weakening the treasury probably helps yeah absolutely no that's i I think that's i I think we'll um the questions seem to have um there's potential people typing away questions but i think given you've given us an extra 10 minutes of your time um and i I, i'm desperate to try and keep episodes within an hour and i've failed miserably steen it only remains to say thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure really really interesting insightful episode Uh, a linchpin given that it's something we talk about so much um, thank you so much. That's been brilliant. Um, it's, thank you uh, so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. It only remains for both of us to sort of um, thanks to everyone in the chat. And um, oh, Deirdre uh, Torres says uh, hi to Steen. Glad he got in the Harold Wilson story. Lovely, very good. Uh, yes, lots of uh, statistical friends, uh, left, right, and centre, um, uh, shouting hello. Um, Steen, uh, thank you so much, everyone in the chat. Thanks so much. Uh, cheerio, everyone. Cheerio.